0: one thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus glorified. Bow your heads with me please this morning. Father, we just thank you for this service today. Thank you for your presence in this place. Holy Spirit, we in this moment right now, just cry out to you and we ask you all to, to come and to teach. You're the teacher. You're the guide. You're the counselor. You are a paraclete. You're a helper. You're an advocate. You just ask in Jesus' name that you would minister in this service. I can't do anything without you. You can move through me. Do all things. Thank you that your strength is here, your mercy, your love, your joy, your peace, the power of the Lord to minister to every need in this place. We thank you for that in Jesus' name and all of God's people. Amen. What a blessing it is to be with each and every one of you this morning here in the house of the Lord. And, and uh, I just want to say to you, you probably were wondering, well, now what in the world is he going to do this week with this whole elemental study with all of this thing being about the various elements in the old world and the comparison with them to the Holy Spirit? We started out with the wind, the wind says... In John chapter 3, in that passage, it says that so is everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. He's like the wind. You you can't see where it's coming from. You can't see where it's going. He said, so is everyone who is born from above, who is born of the Spirit. And we we talked about the, the adventurous life that God has called us to. He doesn't want us to stay in some kind of dead, dry routine, some kind of mundane sort of existence. But He has called us to a place of following Him into an exciting life of the kingdom, The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, and what? Have it to the fullest, have it more abundantly, the King James says. So this morning when we're talking about this element of water, I just couldn't help but just think, Lord, you know, first the natural, then afterward that which is spiritual. We've had an absolute deluge the last two days. And uh, matter of fact, if you're in the right seat in this place this morning, you can probably actually not just hear the water and see it running, the the running water on the screens, but you can probably feel a drip here or two. We deliberately, I want you to know, we took time, we poked holes in the roof of our church, and we put some buckets out to catch some water. No, I'm just teasing. Uh, I, I came in here this morning, actually yesterday, about probably four o'clock, thinking that this place was just going to be a whole mopping crew needed. And I was overwhelmed because there are times when we've not gotten a third of the amount of rain that we got yesterday, and there'd be water all over the place. So I don't know what happened, just a few buckets where it had to be put out. John Bowles came in Friday night before this whole thing started, moved a few tiles and put some buckets out, and some others have been in here mopping, and I just appreciate so much. We've got a generous church that gives time and talent and treasure. If you would just give yourselves a hand this morning. I'm, I'm so thankful for that. You know, I know that the weather kept some folks away because there are folks right now that are still stranded in their neighborhoods. They can't get out because it's not drained yet. One of the access roads into our neighborhood was so full this morning, had I not been in my Jeep, I called my wife and said, don't drive your car through this because it's too low to the ground. And I I was, if it had been a little bit higher, I wouldn't have tried to take my Jeep through it because I know what water does to Jeeps. been around here, you know the story, and if you haven't asked somebody, I'm sure they'll be glad to tell you on the story on me. I got the new one, and the new one doesn't have the pontoon option, so I'm real careful when I get around water with this Jeep. So, uh, But I'm excited today because the Scripture gives us not only the picture of the Holy Spirit like a wind, and we've gone to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 on the day of Pentecost when it was fully come, 50 days. Everybody say 50 days. 50 days after Passover, and Passover is what sets the clock for Pentecost. Now, let me just say something. You might experience Passover in your life and have the blood applied and never experience Pentecost, but I'm going to tell you, you can't experience Pentecost without experiencing Passover because God won't pour out His Spirit on something that hasn't been cleansed by the blood and washed by the water of the Word. Are you with me this morning? I want you to understand that, that Passover sets the clock for Pentecost because once Passover came, once the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt by the blood, the blood being applied to the lentils of the doorposts literally three crosses, one at the end of each of the doors and one in the middle. It was a prophetic picture of what the children of Israel would see, literally on a hill called Golgotha a few thousand years after that. They were delivered from Egypt from the house of bondage. While they were still in it, God brought the blood and He passed over them with the death angel. Very much like when we see the storms. You might remember Katrina a few years ago. Immediately after the hurricane ended, people would take paint and they would go into those houses and they would leave a mark on it to say that there is not death here. Or they would leave a mark and say there are so many dead people here in the house. Because there was just havoc that had been wreaked, hazardous situations. People gave literally lost their lives. And that hurricane a couple of years ago that hit the, the coast of Louisiana. Now, the death angels passed over, and every place where there was a mark, there was no death. It was a different kind of mark, but it was a mark still. So Passover sets the clock for Pentecost. God washes us by the blood of the Lamb, and then 50 days later, He visits them in the wilderness on Sinai, and He pours out, gives them a great huge demonstration. Fireworks and billowing smoke. And there was to some degree some trepidation and intimidation, maybe even a little bit of terror. Because they said to Moses, man, we, we, we don't know about talking to this God because this God is bigger than we ever thought. He's bigger than we ever imagined. So why don't you just go up and talk to him? It was there at Sinai where the law was given. And that's fulfilled in the church a few thousand years later on the day of Pentecost, after the Lamb of God was slain and the blood was shed, and it's now applied individually to my heart as I trust in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and He becomes the Lamb slain for me. He took my place, innocent blood, shed in the place of guilty blood. I can experience Passover and yet never enjoy the fulfillment of being having a filled life, being filled with the Spirit. But... There is also that that demands that it be applied to my life. Pentecost is for us today. The presence and the power of the Holy Spirit is for us today. And I'm not just talking today about wind and adventure or about fire and power like we did last week, but today it's about water and passion. Everybody say, Passion. Passion. The passion. Of the Holy Spirit. This element of water is a picture that is shown throughout the Word. And I'm going to take you to a couple of stories today. And we're looking this morning, first of all, right here in this passage in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. And I'm going to read it one more time. Look it with me into the notes and it says it this way. On the last day of the feast, the great day. Read it out loud with me. Either on your your page, in your notes, or on the screen. Either one. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone, what? Thirsts. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you thirsty? Look at your neighbor and ask him right now. Say, are you thirsty? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. King James says, out of his belly. Literally this picture of kind of... We're not literalists. We don't think that in the kingdom, the new man is going to have some kind of pump on the side. But this is scriptural language. It's speaking of something alive flowing up out of you. In other words, you don't just get a drink of eternal life, but it becomes a well. It sort of springs up. It becomes a source of life on the inside of you. It is alive. It's not a dead body of water. It's not the dead sea where nothing can live, but it's a living body of water. It is like you heard this morning in that very first roll-in. You heard moving water. It's moving water where life is given. It's the movement of the Spirit of God. It's the power and the presence and the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives that brings life to what once used to be dead. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, read this with me. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Now stop right there. They had already believed, past tense, but look at it with me. It says they were to what? To receive. So that's not yet come. They believed. And I want you to see that's very much like us who come to Christ. And we trust in Him. But yet there's something that comes beyond just knowing Jesus as Savior. There's something beyond Passover with the application of the blood. But there is the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. All right, Let's finish it as we go. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, this morning for a few moments, I want to talk to you about passion. Everybody say passion. If if we define passion, passion very simply is an intense desire or an enthusiasm for something. Everybody say an intense desire or enthusiasm for something. Now, say it with me all together. Here we go. Passion is an intense desire or enthusiasm for something. I want to give you a real quick little history lesson. You know how, in our lives, we've seen new words added to the standard usage of our language. Email. My, my parents didn't know anything about email. What is email? Well, they got what we now call snail mail. The slow, creeping kind that comes from the U.S. Postal Service. Email is a new word that's been coined, actually, in, the, in a previous generation. My parents would actually be about two generations back with their age. I'm thankful to that. I'm thankful for a mom in the house of the Lord who's 85 years old, who went through a stroke four years ago and still brings her walker in here and lifts her hands and gives God praise. And so if you would, just put your hands together and give my little 85-year-old mom a hand. I'm thankful for that. But so much has changed. There was no such thing as the Internet, Our vocabulary has expanded because of technology. It's expanded because of cultural changes that have taken place around us. We have to, as the people of God, not stay in some kind of dark ages in our methods or in the way we choose to reach this generation because the generation today is very, very, very savvy. Our children have grown with the internet and with email and with texting and Facebook and Twitter and all of these different kinds of things that they're just now, we, we just go, wow, what is this? You're, you, you have 15 different ways of communicating and send, sending messages. And we were just getting on a telephone, by the way, which we didn't have in our pockets in those days. <laughs> I mean, stuff has changed. It's, it's an amazing day to be alive. It's Uh, I want to tell you at the same time, in the midst of that darkness, God is raising up a church that's going to shine brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter in the middle of all that darkness. You can put your hands together and give the Lord praise because that's a good place to give him praise. Now, I said all that to say this, and that's to bring you this one point. The word enthusiasm is a word that was added to the vocabulary during the great awakenings of American history. And everybody say Enthusiasm. You, you use that word today and really probably just think about somebody. You think about being enthused. You say, she is really enthusiastic. Man, he, he preached enthusiastically today. And you, you think about somebody who is passionate, who maybe has maybe a little bit of emotion that's put into it. They're excited about it. They're, there's a magnetism. There's a little bit of a charismatic element to it because it draws you in. It's not just deadpan. Everybody say enthusiasm. Enthusiasm was birthed during, between, actually, and used during the, the two great awakenings in America. The first great awakening with John Wesley, the Methodist preacher, with Jonathan Edwards, the, the great Presbyterian, really technically the Congregationalist minister, and then George Whitefield, the British evangelist, 1737 through about 41. Presence and power of God's poured out all over the 13 colonies and the, the, the pulpits of, the, of those 13 colonies literally became the place and the central hub from which one message, liberty in Jesus Christ, began to be preached. And because of the message of liberty in Christ, it laid foundation. Historians, by the way, mo- most of which are not Christian, will tell you that the pastor of those local churches in those villages and those little small hamlets in those 13 colonies were responsible for laying the foundation of the concept of liberty in Christ that became the impetus, the driving power between the first, the American Revolution in 1776 and declaring independence from the tyrannical powers of King George III under England. By the way, if you think about this, it will absolutely amaze you and fascinate you, we fought that war over a 3% tax. Look at your neighbor and say, he better leave that alone. (laughs) Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney, a man who's trained to be an attorney, gets saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and literally radically shakes, particularly the northeastern seaboard. Second Great Awakening. Rochester, New York is about 100,000 people and on record historically 70,000 of them turned to Christ. Factories shut down because Finney could walk in and the presence of God would fall and people would fall out slain in the spirit. Finney would get on a, on a train. And the conductor would get down on his knees. This happened. This is not dynamic, some kind of little word of mouth, uh, unsubstantiated rumor. This is founded in history. If any walked in such of the power in the presence of God, he'd get on a train. The conductor one time fell on his knees and said, Please tell me what I need to do to be saved. Convicted, the power and the presence of God moving. And it was in those two revivals where the word enthusiasm first began to be coined and used because they talked about all these people who had been imbibed with the Holy Spirit, not just trusting in the blood to save them, but who were filled with the Spirit to empower them. Two great awakenings, historically substantiated and validated in American history. And enthusiasm is the word that is used. They got excited. They were passionate And I want to tell you this morning, I I want to try and ignite something on the inside of you. I've talked about the adventure of the wind blowing through your life. I've talked about the fire of God coming and giving you power. Dynamite to blow up the effects of the enemy. A dynamo, a dynamic kind of life. Dunamis is the word for power. The fire of God. This morning, I want you to see that God wants to, by his water, fill every crevice, every dry place, every routine, every rut every legalistic, pharisaical thing and wash it out so that you can have a living relationship with Him that is motivated by the passion, the water of the Holy Spirit. Somebody say amen. Amen. Are you thirsty this morning? Come to Jesus and drink deeply. Reminds me of those boys on the baseball field when Drew used to get up and bat, and those boys would holler and say, Come on, Drew, hit that ball, get you some. Look at your neighbor right now and say, Get you some. Get you some. It's all one word. G-E-T-C-H-U-S-O-M-E. Get you some. Come on, say it with me right now. Everybody say, get you, get you some. Are you thirsty? Come to Jesus and drink deeply and get you some. How thirsty are you? We drink to the degree that our thirst requires. We're dehydrated. And when we are really thirsty, we'll, it's not one of these nice little sweet sips. And Some folks, you know, they want to kind of keep Jesus at bay and just, let me just get enough basically to get me to heaven, give me some fire insurance, just sort of sipping saints, you know, just a little bit. How many of you know if it's a hundred degree day and you've been out working in the yard and sweat's rolling off of you, nothing like it is me right now at this moment? Uh You know, when you're really thirsty and it's one of those days and you're parched, you're parched down to your toenails and somebody brings you a great big glass or a big huge jar and I've got a mason jar this morning that I'm going to give you a demonstration with. But I I can remember sometimes I'd be out working in the yard and I was so thirsty I'd get a drink and it would roll off my chin all the way down the shirt that was already sweat stained. How many of you know that's the kind of drink Jesus wants to give us this morning? He wants to fill us and empower us and take the water of the Holy Spirit into every dry place of our lives. This isn't just about natural thirst being quenched. But this is about us being filled up with the Spirit to the point of having true passion for the kingdom of God. What happens now? John 14, 15, and 16 is a tremendous passage of Scripture. And I'm going to sit down a little while today. John 14, 15, 16 is an amazing passage Because it's that place where Jesus instructed his disciples before he entered into his passion. Before he, out of his amazing intense enthusiasm and love for you, went to the cross and took your sins upon himself. Before he entered into his passion, he sat down with the disciples one night and he opened up from John 13 all the way through John 17 when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed And he basically said, boys, listen, I'm going to send you another comforter. There's there's a paracletos. There is a paraclete. There's an advocate, a counselor, a teacher, a helper who's going to come. And he can't come unless I go away and send him back to you. And they're going, "No, wait a minute, Jesus. (laughs) You're not going anywhere. Things are just starting to get pretty good around here. You know, you got some folks that are ready to make you king. We're going to tear down the Roman Empire. We're going to see the kingdom restored to Israel. And they've got all kinds of ideas that have nothing to do with the plan that Jesus has. So Jesus says, no guys, I've, I've got to go away and it's going to actually be better for you. I'm going to send you another comforter. And when I go away, he's going to come back and the God who has been with you is going to move inside of you. Everybody say Emmanuel. Emmanuel means what? God with us. John chapter 1 verses fourteen. verse 14 says, and the word was made flesh and it dwelt among us. The Greek word means tabernacled. He set up his tent, his earthen body, his tent. He dwelt among us. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of the message. He says, the word became flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. Don't you like that? Because when somebody moves in next door to you, you get to know them as neighbors. You see how they live. You observe the lifestyle. When Jesus came to earth, it was God moving into the hood. God says, You know what? I don't just want to know you from afar and be the transcendent God, but I want to be the eminent God. I want to be the Emmanuel God. I want to be the God who walks around among you. I want to know my creation as the creator, separate and defined, completely different, other than. But I want to know you. I want you to know me. And so God became the God dwelling among us, God. The God Emmanuel God. The God moving into the neighborhood, God. But Jesus said, boys, it's not going to stop there. The dwelling among us, God, is going to become the dwelling in us, God. Did you hear what I just said? Everybody say, dwell among us. Dwell in us. It's a complete different concept. Jesus said it in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. This is not on the board. This is extra in my notes. Just take it down. John 14, verses 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Verse 17. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Now hear this, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now he was already dwelling with the disciples. They had believed. The disciples were believers. Somebody said, Well, they weren't really born again yet. Well, Somebody said they weren't born again until the day of Pentecost. I don't agree with that because John 20, he pulled them all together and he breathed on them, literally in the Greek, he breathed into them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that's when the 12 or 11 at that point, when the 11, because Judas was already gone, that's when the 11 received salvation. The Holy Spirit was breathed into them and then on the day of Pentecost they were baptized in the Holy Spirit 50 days later. The blood was applied. Jesus had died. He gathered them together. He'd already been raised from the dead, rose again, the same power that conquered the grave. Jesus was breathing into them and saying, now receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that's when they truly experienced eternal salvation. It changed. Eternal life came into them. It wasn't just the Holy Spirit being among them, but it was the Holy Spirit now dwelling on the inside of them. Then on Pentecost... They got baptized in that same stuff. All right? So look with me. We got one thing that we're going to look at today. Everybody say the one thing. Say, read it in, your, read it in your notes, and it should be on the board. It says, the Holy Spirit is like water that refreshes, fills, cleanses, and flows. Say that with me right now. The Holy Spirit is like water that refreshes, fills, cleanses, and flows. Do it one more time. Here we go. The Holy Spirit is like water that refreshes, fills, cleanses, and and flows. i got two water stories. We've talked about John 7, the last day of the great feast of tabernacles. Jesus said, I'm going to give you the spirit and when it comes out of your bellies, out of your hearts will flow rivers of living water. And so I want to give you two examples this morning. First of all, this one is found in John chapter 14, verses 13 through 15. And in your notes, it's Jesus at a well. Everybody say Jesus at a well. Jesus At a well. All right. I have one scripture here that I want you to see, and it should be printed in your notes. It says, Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again. And again, I'm reading from the message. Anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty, won't ever have to come back to this well again. Now, she didn't quite get that part right. It's called the woman at the well. You heard the story. And Jesus was talking about spiritual water. He didn't mean that if you drank that one time that you'd never ever thirst naturally again. You're still going to have to come back. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit this morning, but I still have to drink to quench the thirst of my physical body. So she's reading a little bit too much into it, and he's going to speak to that. Now, as we look at this this morning in your, your first point, we're, we're talking about the one thing. The Holy Spirit refreshes, and it fills, and it flows, and it cleanses. And these four things that we're going to look at in these two passages this morning, the first one is that the story of Jesus at the well. And I want to go back and just listen as I read, and we don't have this on the notes, but listen as I read through several verses out of John 4, and I'm going to sort of comment as we go. Is that Okay. Anybody get anything out of this? All right. Jesus realized that the Pharisees were keeping count of the baptisms that he and John performed. I'm in John 4, verse 1, reading from the message. Verse 2, although his disciples, not Jesus, did the actual baptizing. They had posted the score that Jesus was ahead, turning him and John into rivals in the eyes of the people. Now, let me just say to you right now, if you think the religious folks in town aren't watching what's going on at Victory, you're wrong. Pharisees are always concerned, the religious folk. You know what? It was never the sinners that gave Jesus problems. It was always the religious folks, the folk of the established current religious system. Now, you just plug in whoever you think of when you see at that point. And that doesn't mean that everybody in those denominations are necessarily pharisaical or religious. But sometimes it can... Matter of fact, let me just deal with that right now. We can get a pharisaical spirit right here in this congregation. When we are trying our best to follow the flow of the Spirit and to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to, to be fresh and to do new things, we can, we can easily, it's so easy to, one day be the prodigal son returning and the next day, less than 24 hours, get the spirit of the elder brother on us. God help us. Pharisees are keeping count. The religious folks are watching what's going on. Listen, verse 3. So Jesus left the Judean countryside and went back to Galilee. To get there, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, there had been a long-standing feud between the Jews and the Samaritans and Jews typically took the long way around in order to avoid this section of Palestine that had been referred to as Samaria. Because when the kingdom separated, when the, the, the ten tribes went to the north and the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin went to the south, Remember after Solomon and his son came forward, we had the split with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And then you've got two different kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And because Israel to the north, the ten tribes, never did have a revival. They never did have a godly king set on the throne after that. It was all wickedness. Judah had periods of revival and they had periods of decline. Periods of revival on the mountain, periods of decline in the valley. But the area of Samaria was up there to the north and because of that, They had intermarried and intermingled between some of the races and picked up some of the practices. And so the real true Jews of the South saw those people as a bunch of half-breed dogs, the Samaritans. To some degree, there was some racial prejudice involved in it. Not unlike what we're dealing with here in the plantation mentality of the South. An amen would be real good right in there. (laughs) Jesus was dealing with some prejudice That was pent up and had been there for generations. Jesus regularly, the Jews regularly went around. Now, guys, I'm sorry that I'm having to fool with this thing, but I'm sweating so bad today because I got so into that worship and it's just all over the place. Let me stop and get this thing fixed here. I'm sorry. The Jews regularly went around, they would take the long way around to avoid any contact with these half-breeds, with these outcasts. And the Bible says in verse 5, He came into Sychar, a Samaritan village that bordered the field Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, worn out by the trip, sat down at the well. I love this. It's It's such a blessing to me that even though Jesus is God in the flesh, God of very God, man of very man, he still gets weary and tired. The message says he is worn out. Everybody say, slap worn out. That's the way we would say it here in the South. Dude is tired. He sits down on the well. It was noon, the Bible says. It was the heat of the day. A woman, strike one. Everybody say strike one. A Samaritan, everybody say strike two and three. This woman's already struck out. It's a woman because Jews are not going to talk to women up there at a, at a public place like this. Certainly not at a well. Jewish men are. And she's a Samaritan woman. Strike two, strike three, there's prejudice against her because of all this cultural animosity that has been going on in between Jews and Samaritans now for generations. It says, a Samaritan came to draw water. Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? His disciples, verse 8, had gone to the village to buy food for lunch. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman, taken aback, asked, how come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. Now listen. Jesus gave us a model right here for how we are supposed to love people. We're supposed to love across cultural situations. We're supposed to love beyond prejudiced expectations. We're supposed to love past Tainted reputations. Did you hear what I just said? Cultural situations that we deal with here in the South. Black and white, Hispanic, Asian, Latino, African American, Caucasian. All of these different things that there is enmity, there is strife that exists between the races here. Some degree of some gender prejudice still exists here. Women, to some degree, are still beating up against a glass ceiling, trying to break through in order to be able to earn the same amount of money when they're doing the same work that a man's doing. Y'all don't shout me down this morning. I don't care whether I sound like a Republican or a Democrat or whatever. That's just Bible. How many of you know if you do the same job and you're a female, come on, women, at least help me out. If you do the same job a man does, you ought to be getting the same pay a man gets paid. Jesus came and liberated women. This was one example of it. He spoke to her. He saw dignity in her. He, he, he related to the image of God that was inside the heart of this broken Samaritan, prejudice against her, cultural situation, strife and enmity. And at the same time had a reputation that had already been tainted. And Jesus loved past and beyond all of those things. His disciples, the Bible said, after Jesus had asked, would you give me a drink of water, his disciples had gone to the village to buy food for lunch. The Samaritan woman was taken aback and she said, why would you talk to me? Jesus answered in verse 10, if you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink and I would give you fresh living water. Everybody say living water. And she's going, yeah, right. Dude, you you don't have anything to draw water with. What, What do you mean living water? This is like an infomercial she's thinking. Yeah, yeah. You buy this, and twenty nine ninety five, you get a set of Ginsu knives too. Yeah, right. The woman said, "Sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with. What are you talking about? Are you are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it, and he is his sons and his livestock passed it down to us?" Jesus said, "Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. Anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever." The water I give will become an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life, he says. In other words, you're going to become a source. Something down on the inside of you is going to take hold. And it's not just going to be a little drink on the inside of you, but it's going to become a water source, period. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty again, won't ever have to come back to this well again. Now Jesus is talking spiritually and the woman is thinking about natural thirst and water. Now, I have a container this morning that I'm going to take time. We got this out of the sink. This is an empty vessel here that I'm going to use and this is very much like receiving the drink of the water of eternal life. God comes and The Holy Spirit comes in. Pentecostal folks, and I say this, and I can because I came from that heritage. I'm thankful for my heritage, but there are a number of things that I have moved beyond and grown beyond because I realized there were some things that I was taught that weren't biblical. We used to tell our Baptist friends that you didn't have the Holy Spirit. And then I found some verses one day that says there's no way you can be saved. You can't know even know Christ apart from the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of God comes on the inside of you and the Holy Spirit is there. And the dwell among us God has moved in to the believer. And He's become the dwell inside God. The Holy Spirit is in there. He is residing But I still want to tell you there is a significant difference between having Passover applied to your life and the Holy Spirit dwelling and having Pentecost applied to your life where you are not just got a drink on the inside of you. I tell you what, I'm going to even do it better than this. Get me a light over here on this baptismal tank this morning because I want you to see there's a difference of getting the Holy Ghost on the inside of you and actually getting the Holy Ghost all around you and your life being changed and it starts flowing and sloshing out all over around you. That's what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's all on the inside and it's flowing out. And all of a sudden beyond that, you begin to see that there's a level of passion because the joy of the Lord is filled your life. It's moved into every crevice. It's moved into every portion. Uh, what was on the inside just as a drink became an artesian spring, a source of life of water on the inside. Come on. We used to sing this song back in Pentecost when I was growing up. Spring up, oh well, within my soul. Spring up, oh well, and overflow. Spring up, oh well, and give to me that life abundantly. Everybody say, spring up, oh well. It's not just a drink, but it's something that becomes alive and starts to flow up. Out of me it becomes a source of water and a source of life itself Jesus says hey man go call your lady go call your husband she says I have no husband that's nicely put I have no husband Jesus says maybe with a little slight sarcastic tone in his Jewish voice he says you've had five husbands and the man that you're living with now is not your husband so yeah you've said right you spoke with truth there sure enough and so she all of a sudden, realizing that he's reading her mail and ringing her doorbell, oh, you're a prophet. <laughs> Duh. Here comes the smoke screen. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, here comes the smoke screen. She's getting her doorbell rung and all of a sudden she wants to go theological. Guys do this to me at the gym all the time. I work out with them. I meet them. They find me to be just an everyday normal average Joe kind of guy and we're talking about working out or whatever until they find out that I pastor a church and all of a sudden all the cussing and all the stuff dirty jokes all that stops and all of a sudden they want to argue something about scripture which they probably haven't even picked up their copy of and read in three years how many of you know what I'm talking about They all you know, put on a big religious front and this is what the woman does she says well tell me this she gets her best seminary look on her face She says, our ancestors worship God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? Jesus responds and cuts it and he says, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here at this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It's not about where you say or even where my people say. It's not about place at all. It's not about worship style. It's not about the building. It's not about the architecture. It's not about the songs. It's not about your preference. It's not about any of this kind of stuff. It's about the presence of God. He says this, you worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews. Religious folk throw up smoke screens and distractions all the time, take issues with things that are not even an issue. The style of the bucket that you're drawing up the water with. Well, I don't like that one. I gotta go to another church because I like the bucket that they pull the water up with better over there. I don't like that new baptismal tank they've got at victory. Verse 23, but the time is coming. It has in fact come when you, when what you're called will not matter. In other words, the name on the door, the, 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 the title of the church, the, 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 the label in your designer robe of righteousness. Matter of fact, God's cutting them out. This is, this is a Steinmark move of God. It's not about Polo or Ralph Lauren or Tommy Hilfiger anymore. God's cutting all that mess out. Come on, somebody. She says, your worship must engage He says it's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Jesus says your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is looking out for. Those who simply and honestly themselves before Him worship before Him in their worship. Why? There's a thirsty creation out here. There's a groaning creation all around us that needs a drink. And we're caught up worried about the style of the bucket that we're drawing the water up out of the well with. We've got to make communion. We have to make a connection with God. That's the what. The connection is His presence. All of that is the what and the why. And we get so caught up about the how. And God says, Look, the how changes in every generation. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship Him must do it out of their being, their spirits, their true selves, in adoration. The woman said, I don't know what all about that, but I do know that the Messiah is coming. When He arrives, we'll get the whole story. Jesus said, You're looking at Him, baby. I am He. I'm here. I'm in front of you. Just then the disciples came back. He says, you don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to look any further. And the disciples all of a sudden showed up. They were shocked. They couldn't believe he was talking with that kind of a woman. No one said what they were all thinking, but their faces showed it. The woman took the hint and left. In her confusion, she left her water pot the very thing that she'd been using to draw up that natural water, she left it and she ran off and she began to proclaim because something had gotten down on the inside of her. Her life had been changed. She got a drink of water that became a well, an artesian well on the inside of her. And she says, come see a man who, who knew all about the things that I did, who knows me inside and out. What am I saying to you this morning? Come on, saints, you don't even have to have a Pentecostal experience like I do to get some excitement. If somebody really has truly just been born again, there's going to be some passion to tell other people about Jesus. And I just want to say to you this morning, if if you've gone for months, if you've gone for days, and let me just head it the other direction, if you've gone for weeks and months and years, and you've never shared your faith with anybody who is not saved, it's easy to walk around in this room because it's a safe place to talk about Jesus. It's something else to step out in faith and share how amazing Jesus is in the workplace where people sometimes are not open to hearing about the gospel. But if you've got it on the inside of you, it's got to come out. There ought to be some passion. There ought to be some excitement to pour out our hearts and to share with others. Somebody say amen. A a change took place. She experienced God at the well. Something was inside her that satisfied. It met the need. It quenched the thirst. It became a spring. It was a passion on the inside of her. And she told others the one thing. Everybody say, the Holy Spirit is like water that refreshes, fills, cleanses, and flows. I got one more thing and I'm finished. Jesus first was at a well and now you're going to see him at a wedding. Another water story real quickly. If you would put that up, it's John chapter 2, verse 9. When the host tasted the water that had become wine, he didn't know what had just happened, but the servants, of course, knew. He called out to the bridegroom. Everybody I know begins with their finest wines, and after the guests have had their fill, brings in the cheap stuff, but you've saved the best till now. This act in Cana of Galilee was the first sign Jesus gave, the first glimpse of his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, if you've got a little bit of a religious spirit this morning, then I'm I'm gunning for you, and this will offend you, and I want it to. Have you ever thought about the fact that the very first miracle Jesus did wasn't to raise somebody from the dead? It wasn't to heal a sick person. It wasn't to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and somebody trust and believe and be saved in that coming kingdom. Any of the number of things that I could list this morning that we would expect to be really super spiritual things. The first miracle that Jesus did was to make a party better. (laughs) The wine had run out. Jewish people are celebratory. They love their... Their parties, their celebration experiences. When their children get married, man, I mean, it's, a, it's like pull up your pants legs, hike up your dress here a little bit, and honey, let's cut the rug. Let's, let's break the glass. Let's throw the party. Come on, grab my arm, and we're going to dance around. We're going to create some sweat. We're going to have a good time. We're going to celebrate. And while that celebration's going, it's because the wine is flowing. Now, this morning, I'm not here to offend you about whether you're a teetotaler or the alcohol is right or proper to drink. And I'm not even going to take issue with that. That's one of those non-essentials of the faith. I just want to say to you that drunkenness is the sin not to drink. And if you can't touch it at all and stay away from it, if you have to stay away from it because it overcomes you, then you need to stay away from it. I just want to say that to you this morning. That's not even what this message is about, and I won't be distracted to chase that rabbit any further down that trail. For the people who want to claim that this water that was turned into wine was just grape juice, you're an idiot. <laughs> that is a pure Pentecostal Baptist. I'm, I'm just gonna slam everybody in the process here. That is just that is just a pure denominational because we don't do alcohol in our denomination. That Jesus wouldn't have turned it into alcohol. But, you know, some people actually say, no, that was that was new wine, that was That was wine that wasn't fermented. There was no alcohol there. Wait a minute. we got a governor of the feast who is basically a wine connoisseur who is just going crazy, going, What is this? This is the best stuff. You always serve your best stuff first. Then when everybody gets a little bit tipsy, then you bring out the junk, the cheap stuff. And he said, This is the best stuff I've ever put in my mouth. I've never tasted anything. And when the new wine of the Holy Spirit comes in the, inside of you, you are like a wineskin. That's the reason you have to be pliable and flexible and willing to change and be able to be stretched a little bit. Come on, somebody. Because when new wine comes into you and it starts to ferment and the longer it's in there, it gets better and better and better and better. It stretches you. Your faith begins to grow. You start seeing the kingdom of God with a bigger perspective than you've ever imagined before in all of your life. Amen. It stretches you. The wineskin starts to grow. That's the reason Jesus said, I can't put new wine into old wineskins, because it'll stretch you and you'll pop. Jesus is at a wedding, and his mama says, come here, boy. Jesus. Jeez, come here. They run out of wine. Jesus said, it's not my time yet, mom. It's not yet. Mom not even moved whatsoever, not a worrier, not looking at the bottom line, not, not complaining because somebody didn't plan right. Because you know what? Life will, see, will send you circumstances that you can try your best, you can steward it, you can budget, you can plan right. And you know what? There will be some wedding creatures that will show up. The crowd will be bigger than you ever expected. It, it, it's amazing how when the blessing of God starts coming, people, with more needs show up and guess what? You've got to meet those needs. These people are hungry, Jesus said to the disciples one day. Well, we only got a buck seventy-five. They found a little boy who was willing to give his lunch and you know what happened. You know the story. Well, same things going on here at this wedding. The wine stopped flowing. They ran out. Something happened in Jesus' mama because she remembered before he was ever born. there was some new wine of an angelic visitation that got poured into her one day when she was about 13, 14 years old, and she had to go home and tell her daddy that day. Can you imagine? This is almost like, you know, Abby comes home one day, and she's done this, and a couple different kids might have done this, and they tell you something absolutely outrageous, and when you get past the shock, they go, Oh, by the way, that's not really true. I just made a D on my science test. Now, my kids have done that kind of stuff. Basically, he said, We just wanted you to have the right perspective about this, Dad. <laughs> Drew might have said, Hey, Dad, you know, I'm, I'm in trouble or I had a wreck or something. <gasps> oh, no, Dad, that's really not the case, but I just made a D on this test. And you see, I just wanted you to give you the right perspective. <laughs> now, can you imagine when young Mary goes home and she's 13, 14 years old and she basically says, Dad, I had an angelic visitation today? <laughs> oh, really? What did he say? Well, he says, The. The power of the highest is going to overshadow me and the Holy Spirit is going to come upon me and the holy thing that shall be born of me. Daddy said, what did you just say? Yeah, Daddy, I want to tell you. It didn't get worse. I mean, it didn't get better. It got worse when she gave the news. Not only did I have an angelic visitation, but Daddy, I'm going to have a baby. Now, can you imagine, Daddy? Can you imagine Joseph, the man to whom she's betrothed? Mary had already lived through that. She birthed Emmanuel. She knew what had happened how can this be, seeing I know not a man? And God literally superseded the laws of nature and planted the seed of God Himself into a virgin womb. And she birthed that baby that grew up and became fully man, who was God all along. And so, therefore, there was never a question of faith. She says, she looks at the servants, she says, whatever He tells you to do, do it. So Jesus said, okay, Mommy, you've. You've you've sprung me out. I guess I'm just going to have to obey. I'm going to have to obey my authority. And he looks and he says, servants, come here. See those six water pots over there? They hold about 20 gallons apiece. And I want you to go fill up all of those water pots. So they go about the business. They're over there gathering water. The servants are running around. People are wondering where's the wine. The party's kind of at a lull and people crank up the music just a little bit. And so they've got some folks that are over there gathering in the water pots, the water and he says, I want you to go take this. Jesus says, take this to the master of the feast. Now, you're going to see what I do here. I'm not trying to pull a fast one. And don't please don't go out here and tell everybody that Pastor Michael made Kool-Aid and made the people drink it. That's probably not a good thing to say. <laughs> and I'm not trying to pull a fast one. I'm not trying to do a little illusionary trick or anything like that. But I want you to see, just for the effect, these disciples are going, I mean, these servants of the wedding feast, are filling up these great big huge water pots and they're carrying them. It's taking servants multiple to carry these big water pots with 20 to 30 gallons apiece. And he says, go and take this water in these water pots and serve it to the master of the feast. I don't know where it took place, but somewhere along the way, somewhere in route from getting the water filled up the pots to before they got there. Maybe it was when they stuck the ladle down into it at that point. But somewhere along the way, because of the obedience of the servants. Everybody say obedience. Obedience. Because of the obedience of the servants, something took place, and that, that water began to blush in the presence of its creator. And they stuck the ladle down in that water pot, and they pulled it up, and what used to be water now was the finest water that the governor, the master of the feast had ever tasted before in all of his life. What am I saying to you? People, Jesus doesn't want to just give you a drink to quench your thirst. He wants to fill your life with some bubbly so you can have some joy and some passion. Come on, somebody. He not only wants to have an artesian well inside your heart that fills you up so that the things of this world never ever appeal to you and you don't thirst for them anymore, but you continue to thirst for more of Him. It's not just the water, but that water gets turned into wine. It actually changes its nature and it becomes something that brings joy and gladness. We all need that kind of a filling and a touch of the Holy Spirit. And it came when they obeyed. It came when they decided to trust God and do something that absolutely did not make a lick of sense, period. When they put their trust in the Lord and filled those water pots and went on their way. Let me just say to you this morning, don't let anybody and what they say around you put a limit on you or the call that God has on your life. Or the faith that you were trying to trust God for to see a mountain moved? And I know I've been a little bit long this morning and I'm almost finished. You know what? You need to get a hold of a revelation like Mary did. When everybody else around you is fussing about what's not happening right, you just need to look and say, whatever he says, do it. Whatever Jesus says, do it. Say that with me. Say, whatever he says, do it. When it came to anything material, it was nothing to Mary. We need some more wine. Come here, Jesus. This in no way negates the need for preparation. That's not what I'm saying. But no matter how hard you try to fix everything and you get it just right and you plan it out and you even are a wise, faithful steward over every resource, God will set up situations in your life where you will not have enough and you will have to trust Him. You'll have to trust Him in your finances. You'll have to trust Him in your relationship. You'll have to trust Him on your job. You'll have to trust Him in what you're believing God for. The the vision you have for your life. The destiny that He has upon you. What you think has died, He wants to bring it back to life. But you're going to have to trust Him. God wants to take the water of your salvation. He wants to cause it to spring up into an artesian well and then he wants to turn it into wine to give you joy. He wants to put some bubbly and some passion in your heart. What does it mean to be passionate and enthusiastic and intensely desiring God? It means I put him first in every area of my life. There are always excuses. My former pastor 25 years ago used to say it this way and when I was a a 20-something, it made me mad. He said behind every excuse is a lack of desire. And you know what? I've lived a little while and he was exactly right. Well, my father died and Jesus said, Let the dead bury the dead. Now, did Jesus mean you can't take time and go bury your father? No, that's not what he was saying. He's saying, No matter what your excuse is, if you always put it in front of me, my job, I can't can't do this. I've got a job. Well, I can't do this. I've got to make this money. I, I can't do this. I've got all this happening in my life right now. And Jesus is just basically saying, I'll help you with all those details if you'll just put me first and you'll put your trust in me. We all have stuff. We all have worries. We have bills. We have kids. We have mortgages. We have house and car payments. We have all this stuff that we have to deal with. And ultimately, Jesus is saying, I want to know if there's somebody that'll put me ahead of all of that stuff. Because I'm the one who created every bit of that, and I can meet every need that you have according to my riches and glory. But I want to see—is there somebody passionate enough to prioritize me above everything else? Are you hearing me this morning? That's what God's looking for. Are you thirsty? See, some folks don't have any passion because they don't—they're not full because they're not thirsty enough. You know what? I can preach and sweat until I'm blue in the face. I can't make you thirsty. I can pray. I pray for you as a congregation. I say, oh God, let us get beyond the, the, the foolishness of all the drama and help us as a church. This is how I pray during the week and I fast. We've got our praise team fasting on Fridays. Fasting for the presence of God to be poured out on these services on Sunday morning. We fast and pray. And I say, God, in the name of Jesus, make us thirsty. Lord, let us be so thirsty that we just plunge ourselves into the very depths of your water, oh God. So that we've got to have you more than anything else. That we're able to put away all the excuses. Because I'd honestly rather somebody just look at me and say, you know, I don't want to. And I, I can deal with that. Rather than giving me an excuse that's not the truth. I'll just be honest. I, I'm not there yet. I, I just, I, I need some space. Pray for me. But I'm not there yet. I can't do that yet. I, I can work with that. But Jesus says, away with our excuses. I'm thirsty. I want God to do something in this church that He's never, ever done before. You know what? Right now in this church, the the, the move of God is happening. It's not one of these days. We're not preparing for it. It's happening right now. Don't let it happen around you and you miss it because it's come differently than what you expected. Don't let it happen around you and you miss it because... It's a different style or a, a change in some way that maybe has made us uncomfortable. We went to a conference this week, All Access 2010 in Baton Rouge, and me and took Terry Torrance with me and Alex and Jack Murphy. And Jack said a quote on the way back. It may have been on the way there. I don't remember. I think it was on the way back, and he was so powerful. I, I tweeted it and sent it out, and it ended up on my Facebook. And He says, if you're comfortable, truly comfortable with where you are right now, that's as far as you're ever going to get. The Spirit of God is the one who comforts the afflicted. But when we get so comfortable that we're not willing to move and change and grow, He turns and He afflicts the comfortable. We've had a season around here of a few months where we've done some new things and it's been a little bit uncomfortable. And it's afflicted all of us to some degree. But that uncomfortability was for a purpose and that's to say, God, I'm thirsty for you. I want your presence. I want your presence to touch this church so that we can reach the lost because the church is not for us. We are for the world. We are the church. We've gotten so self-absorbed and self-consumed that it's become about me, my, and and our, and our preference, and my desire, and all this kind of stuff. And it's taken us to break out of that, that comfort zone and to be able to say, God, I want you more than I want anything, more than any style, more than any message. I want your... Spirit in your life to fill me so that this church can be filled and that the lost can come to Christ and the Delta can have revival that advances the kingdom of God. Does anybody else in the room believe what I just said right there? Come on, put your hands together. I'm I'm finished this morning. I just want to say to you that when you get that, when God puts some bubbly in your life and you begin to get passionate it's going to affect the words that are coming out of your mouth because the Bible says out of your heart, King James says out of your bellies shall flow rivers of living water. The the word flow is the Greek word reo. We get our English word rhetoric. It's faith-filled, life-giving words. Finish this scripture for me. Out of the abundance of the heart, the what? Mouth speaks. If you've got the water of life flowing up out of you, it's going to flow out of your bellies, out of your hearts, out of your mouths. It's going to be a source of life. It's going to touch other people. It's going to change those around you. Out of the abundance of the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart. Bow your heads with me this morning. Father, I just ask you in this moment right now, as we bring this service to a close, we cry out to you. Thank you, Lord that we made it through these storms and that our houses were spared nobody's life was taken we pray for the families around us to the south in Yazoo City Mississippi last week who lost 10 people God we ask you to move and minister and bring healing bring comfort we're so grateful oh God that we we came through that last night Lord, there was just this amazing flood of water that came. And I believe by the power of the Spirit that you're going to do that same thing in the Spirit over the Delta. You've flooded us with the natural water that's literally kept some of us in our homes for hours and we couldn't even get out. God, I cry out to you, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. If that's you right now, say that right where you are. Just say, I'm thirsty. But we ask you, quench our thirst. Holy Spirit, come and flood us. Flood our lives. Flood our hearts. Give us fresh passion, God. Deal with our excuses, Lord. Touch our desire. Make us want more of you, O God. The cares of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and riches, the lust for other things, all that stuff that chokes out the seed of the Word of God, help us to deal with it. Lord, help us to put you first. Trust in you when it looks like the wine is run out at our celebration. Lord, if there are people under the sound of my voice today that they have more month at the end of their money than they can live through, meet their needs as they put their trust in you. God, in relationships in this room this morning where it really feels like the love has run out, there's no more wine of love between husband and wife. Lord, there's been some deceit. There may even have been some sin. God, I pray that we would be like Mary and we would just say, whatever he says to you, do it. Let us listen with open hearts, so oh God, so that you can fill us up with the water of eternal life and you can change that into the wine that brings us fresh joy. And I ask you for that in Jesus' name. Lord, forgive us when we thought this thing was about us, where we've quibbled over style and music and worship and atmosphere and environment and all that stuff. And, Help us to see, oh God, there are thousands of people in the Delta who need to know Jesus. That's what this is all about. And I ask you for that in Jesus' name. Every head still bowed, every eye still closed.